Welcome back to season two of the Imposter Syndrome Files. My name is Kim Menninger, and I am so grateful that you're joining us. When I started this podcast last year, my primary goal was to normalize the experience of imposter syndrome, to make it easier for us to talk about, and to access the support that we deserve. I am so grateful to everyone who has shared their stories with me, and I'm fascinated by the linkages between imposter syndrome and so many other facets of our lives. The conversations that we had last season led us in so many powerful directions. I'm excited to continue these conversations in season two. As always, if you have a story to share, please reach out to me. I would love to interview you. And if I can ever support you on your own imposter syndrome journey, I'd love to connect on that too. Thanks again for being here. Right. Welcome, Russell. I am really excited to have this conversation with you today and would love to start by learning a little bit more about you. Sure. So I am a USA Today bestselling author, uh, mostly fantasy. So uh, I tell people my brand is Monsters, Magic, and Mythology. And so uh, I've written 18 novels. Uh, My biggest series right now is called The Godsverse Chronicles. It is about all gods are real, they're just kind of dicks, and the women who rise up and, uh, and fight against their destiny to create a place for themselves in the universe. <laughs> I love that. Well, thanks again for being here today, and I want to start just by asking you my standard question of, what does imposter syndrome mean to you, and, and how, if at all, has it shown up in your work or in your life? Well, I'm a writer, so I think that any creative uh, has this idea of imposter syndrome sort of baked in. It's hard because, so there's this piece of imposter syndrome that is like, you know, I don't belong. Like, I don't belong. Suddenly tomorrow they're going to find me out that like, I don't belong. But there's also when it comes to creating this very real idea that like you could theoretically blow it at any point. I mean, how long, how, how often have we been watching a wonderful series that falls apart or a amazing, reading an amazing book that doesn't stick the landing or there's all these, there's all of these ways when you're creating something from scratch that you are legitimately worried. Like there's a legitimate worry that you're going to break this thing because you've not done it before. Um, they say that when you write a book, all you've learned is how to write that book. And, uh, I'm not even sure they're great lessons if I had to write that book because usually it's like it, it's it's becoming okay with the book that comes out. So that's another piece of imposter syndrome because the when you're when you're a creative the like the thing that you want to make is never the thing that you actually make. There's always no matter how good you are, there's always some gap between what you thought was going to happen and what actually happened. So you kind of have to settle and be okay with that. Um, uh, and then there's the part that is completely irrational, which is, you know, everyone's going to hate me or like, I don't belong here, which, uh, which is the irrational part of imposter syndrome for me. You brought up some really interesting points that I think are really helpful for us to talk about in terms of the creative piece. You, you the way that I'm interpreting it is that each of, of your projects, so to speak, has its own baked in imposter syndrome, right? Because you can't, I guess the success of the prior one doesn't predict success of the future one. Is that, am I getting that correct in how you're thinking about it? 
Yeah, so uh, I'll give you an example. So I just did a Kickstarter for um, our most popular book series, Cthulhu is Hard to Spell. We ended up with 775 or so backers, um, uh, Kickstarter, the crowdfunding platform. So 775 buyers who bought some version of that book, uh, ebook or, uh, or, or, or physical. Uh, I just launched uh, my next project, which is this summer slate of books it's like kind of weirder books. There's not really a theme. No one's ever heard of the series before. There's four different series. So that one's got 177 backers. Uh, so 777 people have bought it so far. And there's about a week and a half left. So probably around 250 or 300 buyers. And, you know, like I'm the same creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just happens that the format is books and not comics. Um, it's, it's, it's not Lovecraft. It's my own work. It's not an anthology. It's again, my own work, but those people that bought my previous work, like they're just not buying this product at the same level that they bought that other book. So each pro- and I, that's the same for literally every project that I've ever come out with. Um, so there's the part of like different projects, but there's also the part of a series that is well known and has, you've done a good job up until this point. And then you, there's always the opportunity that you break that, that project, like in the middle, for instance, I always think of game of Thrones season eight. So, you know, people, uh, people may have loved uh, episode seasons one to seven, uh, but like they loved episode seasons one to five uh, at least, and they were happy with how seven had wrapped up. And then in basically three episodes, uh, they broke all of the goodwill to the entire show. And like a lot of people, I could never watch that show again, uh, based on those last three episodes. And like that's the biggest show in the world, and still, like they found a way to break it, like for most of the people who experience that show. So there's the different projects have different levels of success and there's imposter syndrome going on there. And then there's also that, oh my God, like I have this series that is going well, but the next one is going to break it. Hmm. So the pressure to sustain the, the success or the popularity or um, the the positive feelings that people are, are having. Yeah. And give people the, what they are, what, what the series, what they've come to expect in the series, because every series has different expectations that come with it. You know, a thriller has different expectations than a romance. And so, and each series inside thriller has its own sort of tropes and things that why people read the book. And then as a creative, like you're always growing as a business, as a human, you're always growing. So oftentimes you end up having this thing where five years ago, you created this book, you've grown as a human, but you still have to like kind of inhabit the things that we liked about the first books so that you don't break the world. That's so interesting. I mean, certainly it sounds like a lot of pressure and that you are having to do a lot of a sort of analysis or or self-monitoring throughout this process. How do you deal with that pressure? How do you keep yourself from just throwing up your hands and saying, I'm just not going to do this anymore or getting swept up in whatever doubt or, uh, you know, feelings of imposter syndrome might be coming up for you? So the imposter syndrome part, I think the true imposter syndrome part of this is the 
uh, the like, I don't belong here. So that's the one that pops up. That is sort of the easiest to quell. That's to, to quell. And that's sort of the most traditional way that I think about imposter syndrome, the idea of like, I don't belong. And uh, I, I, it's actually, that one's actually very easy for me because I'm like, no, that's not true. I have sold many books. I have many fans that I reach out to on a regular basis. And it is just not true that I do not belong. Like I have many creator friends who enjoy my work, who trust me, and I am part of this community. So I, I actually like to use objective fact a lot when I'm thinking about these things. Um, and then also like what's the worst that happens as well. You know, there's this idea that if this project isn't better than the last one, then suddenly I'm less of a human. So uh, one of the things that I really uh, have been able to say recently and only recently is like, well, I mean, I can look back on my body of work and like, I clearly have had a bunch of success here and I clearly belong. And like, yes, these future books, especially if they're not in like the, the same series or I'm not relying on that series for money, these books may not be like the, the, the heavy hitters of my arsenal. But um, there is, there are plenty of books that are, and there are plenty of people that like look up to me and like my work. And even if you have only sold one book, uh, or one project or one thing, and the person has been, has, has had success with it or enjoyed it, uh, you can look back at them and, and, and say, well, like that person liked it. So if I say that I'm not, that, that I don't belong, that I'm not good enough, then what I'm saying really is like that person has bad taste. Mm -hmm. And like, I prefer not to insult the people who buy from me. And so it's just as this like kind of circuitous way for me to, uh, to like short circuit that, that like part of my brain and say, well, um, are you willing to insult all of the people who've bought your work by saying you don't belong and you aren't any good? And if I can't, if, and considering that I don't, I kind of have been able to sort of Pavlov myself into uh, not thinking that anymore. I really like that as a strategy that I think can really be applied to even non-creatives who may be working in traditional office environments too, who, who tend to think to themselves, I don't belong, right? Because if you, if you reframe it in your mind as the people who selected me to be here, I trust them, right? I respect them. I don't believe that they made an error in judgment. Otherwise I am somehow, um, I, I, I'm making a judge, a negative judgment about them in how I'm thinking about myself. Absolutely. I mean, it's really helpful. You know, my wife um, is a research manager or head of researchers. She's got a job in research at a company that uh, her title is ill-defined at the moment. But, you know, she's my best coaching client because like I talk to her about all of this stuff all of the time. And like she's very much in corporate America and when she has doubts, I have to I, I tell her the same thing. I say, do you trust your boss? Do you think he's an idiot? Uh, do you think he would have hired you for this job if like you weren't qualified and you've been doing it for now three years or two and a half years or something? Like, do you think he would have kept you going if if it was more work for him to have you there and you weren't a help? And she said, no, no, no. And I said, well, then you have to admit that uh, that like you at least belong. 
you know, a healthy, a healthy amount of I'm going to like, I don't want to screw this up, I think is, is, is good for anyone to have, especially when you're going into the unknown. Um, you know, when you have a brand new job, you know, you, I think that, 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 that part of the like, oh my God, did they make a mistake? Uh, is oh, like, I want to prove that they didn't make a mistake, which is a good reframe. You know, if they say, I don't want to make a mistake, I always try and reframe it to, I want to prove that they didn't make a mistake. And like that takes the nervous energy and puts it into something productive. And like, maybe it makes me work longer hours or maybe it makes me do something for a time being until, you know, I have a body of work that they are happy with that has actually impacted the company in a positive way. And that uh, allows me to, to uh, and hopefully allows her to sort of think of things a different way. And, and again, healthy, a, like, I think that like fearing that I'm going to break the universe uh, when I write something is, uh, is like positive nervous energy where I'm always, you know, I'm, 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 I'm very much feel like a steward of that universe. And like, I have to do a good job and that um, maybe feel like imposter syndrome uh, but it actually could also be just like good, uh, good uh, anal retentive energy that you can put into a positive light. The problem with imposter syndrome becomes when you get paralyzed by it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's such a great point. I love how you're talking about it in the sense of the one of the flip sides of imposter syndrome is really a sense of responsibility to the role, right? It's that you want to do the best job. You don't want to let other people down, which can put a lot of pressure on us and make us start to doubt ourselves if we let it, right? But if we reframe it, it's more a matter of, I want to make sure that I'm doing my best work here. And there's a different way to manage ourselves when we think about it that way than when we think about it as I don't belong. Yeah, you know, there's this other part, though, um, of imposter syndrome, which becomes which is part positive, but then like can dip into negative where people say, this wasn't my best work. So like, so they beat themselves up over not doing their best work. And, you know, some work is not going to be your best effort. It's like, it's just, it's just, you, like, you can't do your best effort literally every time. Some things have to be good enough and you have to know what that number is. And it has to be like your most important projects are not like this, but you know, spending 30 minutes on every email or, or like fretting over every uh, progress report or, you know, every, every little thing that you have to do. That's when, that's when this idea of like, productive energy starts to become negative again because you do always want to do your best but sometimes your thing is going to have a proofreading error in it and that doesn't make you bad doesn't make the people that are around you bad it just means that you like screwed up this time or you know i have i have for i have writers all the time that write a lot and they just say like uh you know i turned it in it was good it was not the one that's going to win me an eisner It's not going to be the one that's going to win me a Pulitzer, but like it's good and it's high quality Mm. and like the people are going to be satisfied with it. Um, I don't think you can, you don't want to like the way you become a hack is by that being the only thing you care about. But, you know, sometimes you just, you, you can't do your best. Sometimes you get a new dog or you have a kid or like, you have to just do the the, the bare minimum to like that is acceptable to do your job for a week or for a day or for a month. Um, 
uh, or some projects just like it doesn't matter if like your expense report is not spell checked it's like <laughs> nobody cares like the money has to be right but also like looking over every single detail and fretting about it is the way that we actually don't do our best work on the projects that matter and it's important that we try our best all of the time but doing the best and trying the best are two different things and we want to make sure that we're maintaining that anal sense for the projects that really matter. You're so right. I think that's such a great point too because we have to be able to discriminate between something that requires our best effort and something that where good enough is good enough. And if we are applying the same standard across the board, that's where we risk burning out. That's where we risk overextending resources that aren't justified, right? And so I love the idea of really being thoughtful about that because some of us, I think, wear perfectionism as a badge of honor. It's something that we sort of proudly claim and, uh, you know, sometimes jokingly, but there really isn't, isn't a need for perfectionism across the board, even if that were possible. Yeah, so here's the thing is you're just good enough is better than if you're doing the thing that's in your zone of genius or the thing you were hired for, the thing that you specialize in, your good enough is going to be better than anybody else's like best effort. And that is a really important thing that we have to, that is important to know too, you know, like pretty much any article that I write, even if I spent 15 minutes on it is going to be better than most people's like opus because mm -hmm. I've just done it for 15 years. Like I've been, I've been writing a blog since 2007. Uh, I've been writing books since 2010. I, I've been doing comics for, you know, since 2010 as well. I, I, you know, I've been doing this a decade and I've been doing it at a high level for a long time. So if my, if I don't meet my bar of perfection, uh, it's still going to be better than 99.9% .9 of people's best effort. And that is uh, has has been an important thing for me to learn as well when it deals with to deal with imposter syndrome. So, do you have a process or system? And that may be too strong a word, but I'm curious because in the context of what we're talking about, and you're not wanting to break the story, or you know, just making sure that you're staying in alignment with your audience. Is there a way that you temper that need to be, I'm just going to say perfect for lack of a better term, and, and realizing where good enough is good enough? I mean, I guess, is there a way that you're able to stop yourself from ob obsessing or fixating on things? Oh, absolutely. So um, I have a process by how many drafts I allow myself to do of a book before it goes to my editor. And I did this by analyzing like the length of time and the increase of, uh, of, of, of goodness, like the quality increase between drafts of my book. And I found that, uh, you know, between, uh, so I do a garbage draft, which is sort of like just me getting it on the page. Some people call it a vomit draft. I don't think it's a first draft. It's like a zero draft. It's just me literally like getting words on a page to edit. And then I do three other drafts. And I know that there's a huge efficacy in me doing those drafts to get it to the place that I want. So it goes from maybe the first draft goes from zero to like 70%, right? Because like now there's words on a page or maybe zero to 50%. And then the next draft is like a 20% increase and then a 15% increase and then a 10% increase. 
But then every draft after that, I know, is like a 2% or 3% increase. It's just not very much. Whereas if I send it, and then uh, I get more locked into the work that I do. So I'm less likely to want to change it. So when the editor comes in and does like her work, uh, I, I like end up fighting a lot more if I go past three drafts and I just like, I feel like my editor can get it to the point of, 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 of it being done with me after that third draft. Uh, but that took me writing books and doing eight drafts and five drafts. And then like just seeing that the efficacy is really from draft one, a uh, draft zero to draft three, and then the editor and then a proofreader comes in. So part of it is knowing sort of you have to track this over time and just know like, well, you know, if I spend two hours on this, like that's good. But if I spend, uh, if I spend four hours on it, it's not going to get much better. And, uh, and then also having somebody that if you have another part of the chain that you can pass it off to so that they can do their best work. And a lot of my life is about letting people do their best work and giving something to somebody at a, at a point that it is less effective for me to get it and more effective for them to get it. And that just comes from everything in my life. I also know that uh, in a day I can get 5,000 good words written. And if I get 10,000, it's just they're not going to be as good. So I might as well just get 5,000 words in five hours or four hours or however long it takes me to get those 5,000 words. And then after that, um, I do other stuff because then my brain will be better the next day and I can maintain uh, the high quality in less time. Because what ends up happening, at least for me, I mean, I have graves, I have a chronic illness. So like if I go too much or push myself too hard, I lose efficacy the following day. So I just, I know exactly what I can do in a day to get the most results. And then I don't beat myself up for not going harder or further with it. Uh, because I know that if I keep a certain pace and if I do certain things, then I will get it inside of the time limit. And I will be, and, and because I trust myself in my process, because I've just done it so much, I can then get the best product, but it's not going to, to give to somebody else so that they can do their work. I love so much of what you were just saying. And I think the most important thing, because I'm thinking about how this applies to people everywhere in every kind of profession. And I think your point about just knowing yourself, right, to really observe for a while if this is not the way that you've thought about things in the past and to really notice how much time does it take you to do certain things? And when is it time that you're expending that is really not getting you anywhere? You're not really getting anything from it. And then being really okay with stopping at that point, not beating yourself up, putting all of this continued pressure on yourself to keep working for the sake of working. Uh, I think that's such an important point that so many people would appreciate I think if they could get there <laughs> yeah so here's the thing is so I have a chronic illness and in the kind of sort of chronic illness disabled community uh, we talk about spoons knives and forks do you know what spoons knives and forks are no I mean okay, other so, utensils I don't know what's in the context of what you're thinking <laughs> so spoons are the amount of energy you have in a day and different things require different number of spoons and so like a shower might cost you one spoon 
uh, and and uh, and uh, going to the store might cost you four spoons. And it's really important that we know how many spoons we have in a day, and how and what activities we can do to to uh, to spend spoons and then acquire more spoons. So things like napping or reading a book might reacquire spoons for us from a day, and uh, and then fork and then a, a knife is uh, when things start getting dangerous. So, uh, so let's say you've expended all of your spoons um, and you don't have any more, they're all in the dishwasher, um, but you still want to eat some Nutella or something like that. Uh, then a, a knife, you could use a knife, right? Now a knife is dangerous. It's not meant for the job. Um, it might hurt you, but like, and you could still get the, the work done. But what a knife basically means is you're borrowing from the next day's spoons. So when you wake up the next day, you are going to be uh, more tired. You're going to have less spoons. And you're going to have to recover. But sometimes you have to use a knife because you really, really need to get something done that day. But you have to know that it'll take you a day or two days to recover. And like a knife might be three spoons the next day. Um, a fork is sort of the opposite. Uh, it's sort of the traditional stick a fork in me, I'm done. It's the idea that we can all handle so many forks. We can all handle two or three or four. And every person's different of how many forks you can do, whether how many forks you can take on a good day versus a bad day. And then you also have to know how many spoons, knives, and forks you have when it's a good day and a bad day and a medium day. And so all of these things are really, really important. And I also add another section, which is I, uh, there's a movie called About a Boy which with Hugh Grant and he, yeah. So uh, I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I've always remembered his thing where he was talking about like, he thinks of his life in 30 minutes of time and like uh, playing pool, two units of 30 minutes and like doing this four units and this six units of time. And so that combined with like the forks, knives and spoons has been very useful for me to figure out sort of, where I'm the most effective. And unfortunately, we have this habit when we're dealing with perfectionism or we're dealing with doing all this stuff where we're just, we've been borrowing knives for like a year and we're like, and then suddenly we burn out. Whereas if we just did 20% less in a day, we would be able to do our best work in that time frame, And then we could wake up and every single day, pretty consistently, we could do our best work instead of doing our best work on a Monday and then, and then, uh, and then, and then um, uh, borrowing knives from the next day. By the time it's Friday, we're doing not our best work. So I would much rather get 25 hours of my best work done in a week than to get 15 hours of it done on Monday and then be useless for the next four days. So it sounds like, I mean, because unfortunately you have this illness, you have greater self-awareness of where the burnout zone may be, right? Or what you need in order to sustain yourself over the long run. I think, you know, for many people, there's a lack of awareness that contributes to this problem. And so people haven't really thought about it in these terms and they're just kind of blindly applying energy. But I also wonder if there's Something about our society, some of, something about the messages that we're given that s- somehow tell us that if we're not operating on all cylinders at all times, that there's something wrong with us. You know, because you mentioned 
working 20% less and having a better product, right? It's almost as if there's something shameful about taking that extra time and doing something more relaxing or more joyful. Do you get that sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, I constantly am told how hard I work and I'm like, I don't think you know me very well because I work very effectively. Like I work very productively. Like for instance, on Mondays are my day to drink caffeine because I do meetings from morning till night on Mondays. It is the only day that I do meetings all week. The rest of it is for writing time and other times. So I, uh, I only, so uh, caffeine helps me get more spoons for that day, um, but it slightly lowers my efficacy for the other days, um, but not enough for me to not uh, do the caffeine. So, uh, but I say I work from like, nine to two. Most days, like the effective part of my day is nine to two. And then I take a nap or go on a walk or go hang out with my dogs or something. And like, it helps me regain spoons. And then I'll come back at about five and do a couple hours of work. Then in the morning, when I get up from about six to nine, I kind of like dick around and yes, I'll do some marketing or I'll do some other stuff online or I'll answer emails. But like the effective part of my day is nine to two. That is when I know I will be effective. And all of the rest of my life is about guarding that time. So I think that um, people let garbage tasks impact their most productive time. So one thing that I do is time block. And so nine to two every day is my writing time. Now, my writing time might extend out till four o'clock or like, uh, uh, but like it always is at least nine to two unless I finish early. If I finish early, then I don't go to more stuff. I just allow myself to, to like have that extra time and like what a fun day that I had uh, that I got all the work done that I had to do in that amount of time. Um, but like, I think that we don't guard that time well enough. And so what happens is we will let other things bleed into that productive time. Uh, and then what happens is uh, we then have to extend that productive time from five hours to 10 hours because we're constantly uh, idea switching between one thing and the next thing and one thing and the next thing. And that's causing us precious time because we think that things have to be uh, handled immediately. Sometimes they do. 99% of the time, we don't. Uh, uh, but I also think there's this idea as prevalent in all societies uh, that it's like, you are here and you must work and you must be effective at working and you must like monetize your hobbies. And like, if you're not making money, then, then like, what is even the point of life? And, and, uh, it's, uh, it's this thing that started very heavily in America, uh, after world war two and just has like now bled all across the globe into this sort of like dogged working, uh, 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 uh life that we all sort of are, forced into and then guilted into when we want to have any anything uh, but hyper productive time and the truth is that you know you only can be you only have hyper productive time for so long in a day right mm. like you just can't have you the, one of the reasons why these zoom calls are so frustrating or so tiring is because you know, we're spending 10 hours now in hyper-focused time. You know, everybody is just hyper-focused on like other people and themselves. And that drains us, drains our, away our ability to do like a good work. Because when you're tired, you're, uh, you're like, your, your bucket 
of, of, of energy is already mostly drained. And then you have to, then you do, you don't do your most, the most effective work in the least amount of time. It sort of takes you longer and longer and longer to do it, the more tired you are. And then when you're overly exhausted, you know, the next day you, uh, you're dragging for the whole morning and then it just becomes this perpetual cycle. And yes, to answer your question, I absolutely think that this is the problem of a broken society that doesn't have its priorities in order and thinks that productivity is the end-all be-all to all things. Wow. I, I love this conversation and what you've given me to think about, and I'm sure many others, in terms of just how we evaluate how we're spending our time and a really powerful way to think about it. Um, how, or I guess I should say just as we're wrapping up here today, what motivated you to want to tell your story today? And what are you hoping people will take away from it? Uh, so uh, a couple of things. The first is I am uh, trying to get 100 podcasts done this year, like just to guest and like get my reps in. So and like this seems like a, this is such an interesting topic because I talk about it to creatives all the time, like all of the time. This is most of my most of my life when it's not talking about marketing or writing is about like, how can you overcome this idea that breaks everybody? Like, it stops people from, if you had imposter syndrome and you could still get the work done effectively, like, I don't think this would be a huge problem, but the, it is a huge problem because people either don't do the work um, because they're, they're nervous that they don't belong or they'll never belong, or it prevents them from doing new work, or it, it, it like paralyzes them so they don't get the work done that they need to get done in the time they need it to get done. So it's just an incredibly important topic uh, to talk about sort of like, like how can we overcome imposter syndrome and how can we just be like take back control of our lives? You know, as a writer, my, uh, uh, a big theme in my work is destiny and taking control of your destiny and sort of even even if the gods tell you that you have something you're supposed to be doing, that you have some agency in it as well. And I think that, you know, capitalism is a killer, man. Like it's just a killer of like uh, asking the most from you, thinking that everything that you have to do is, is, is it has to return some money that like if you're, if, if, if you are, if you are recharging yourself, then, then then like there's no effectiveness in that, and that's a, studies show that's just not true, you know. Uh, and most importantly, like I have a very like uh, objectively, I've I've created a pretty good way to deal with imposter syndrome, which is just like to objectively say like look at the data. Like I can't. I, I've been doing the same job for ten years. Like I can't possibly be like bad at it because my boss still pays me and yes they yell at me sometimes when i'm wrong or whatever or maybe i should quit this job because they yell at me too much but like they haven't fired me so like objectively i must not be horrible at this job and if you can if you if you can come with this baseline of i'm not horrible at this job or i'm good at this job then you can use your own taste to say well this i have done a good job or a bad job on this task uh and and uh, those two things are very powerful, and I'm, 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 I always want to tell as many people as I can about them. Thank you so much, Russell. And as I mentioned to you previously, you are the first man that I've interviewed, and I so appreciate your perspective, and, and I love how many concrete things that you've shared with us that we can all 
take and apply in our own specific situations. Well, I'm very happy to be here and I'm very happy that I could help uh, people uh, on your show and in your audience. Thanks again for listening today. If you're struggling with imposter syndrome and you'd like additional support, check out the show notes for more resources or contact me directly. I would love to help you. And if you'd like to tell your story, I would love to interview you. You will find my contact info in the show notes. So reach out anytime. Thanks again.